Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Previously on Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. Between 1947 and 1991, the world was locked in a decades-long confrontation between East and West. It was known as the Cold War, a terrifying stalemate that threatened to become World War III and devastate the globe with nuclear war. One of the most dangerous moments of the Cold War occurred in 1962, when it was discovered that the Soviet Union was placing nuclear missiles in Cuba, just 90 miles from the U.S. coast. The result was a 13-day international emergency known as the Cuban Missile Crisis. The key players were American President John F. Kennedy, Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev and Cuban Prime Minister Fidel Castro. The fate of the world lay in the hands of these three men. And we came within a whisker of a nuclear war that would have killed a third of humanity. You did promise last week that there would be a last minute twist in this episode. So it's time to pay up, Jimmy. What's the last minute twist? Well, everything we've covered so far is about the first Cuban Missile Crisis, the one that America and the world were aware of. But we haven't said anything about the second secret Cuban Missile Crisis. So that's what we'll be talking about later this year for the 60th anniversary, the second secret Cuban Missile Crisis that the world didn't know anything about. You're listening to episode 228 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about the second secret Cuban Missile Crisis. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hey, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. In October 1962, the world had a close brush with nuclear war. The Soviet Union placed nuclear missiles on the island of Cuba, just 90 miles from the coast of the United States. When the U.S. learned of this, it prompted a tense 13-day crisis during which we almost went to nuclear war. But at the last minute, American President John F. Kennedy and Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev reached a deal that averted war. The world rejoiced, but there was something that nobody knew. The crisis was not over, and during the course of the next month, November 1962, there was a second secret Cuban Missile Crisis that the Soviets kept hidden from the world. So what happened? Who was involved? And how was the crisis resolved? And that's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. Jimmy, why did you want to cover this mystery now? October 2022 is the 60th anniversary of the Cuban Missile Crisis, and I originally planned to cover the crisis itself this month. But there's the current situation with Russia and the Ukraine, and Russia did a good bit of nuclear saber-rattling a few months ago. So people were curious about whether it might lead to nuclear war. I decided, therefore, to move up our look at the Cuban Missile Crisis as a previous close call with nuclear war so that we could comment on the situation and reassure people. My own view, in light of prophetic and other evidence, is that at least at this time, we're unlikely to have a nuclear war as a result of Russia and the Ukraine, as we discussed in episodes 213 and 214. So listeners can go to mysterious.fm slash 213 and mysterious.fm slash 214 to listen to them. 
But now it's October, and so I decided to tell the story of the second secret Cuban Missile Crisis that America and the world did not know anything about. So be prepared for a wild ride. Okay, so let's start with a quick definition of the second Cuban Missile Crisis. What was it? The first Cuban Missile Crisis occurred when the Soviets placed nuclear missiles in Cuba, and then the Americans found out. It was resolved when President Kennedy and Premier Khrushchev reached a deal to remove the missiles. In a sense, the first crisis was about how Kennedy and Khrushchev got to the point of making the deal to remove them. But now they actually had to be removed. So the second Cuban Missile Crisis involved actually getting the missiles out of Cuba. The action thus shifted from Kennedy and Khrushchev to Khrushchev and Castro. Could the Russians convince the Cubans to go along with the plan? What if they said no? The U.S. and the rest of the world knew that in November of 1962 that there were negotiations taking place in secret between the Soviet Union and Cuba. But there was something we didn't know, something the Americans had not discovered during the first Cuban Missile Crisis. And that will be a twist in today's episode. All right. Look forward to that. So let's give a quick recap of the first public Cuban Missile Crisis, the one that the world knew about. What happened during it? In early 1962, the Soviet Union approached the nation of Cuba about the possibility of placing nuclear missiles on their island. This was in part because at the time, the United States had the Soviet Union at a severe strategic disadvantage when it came to nukes. The Soviets had very few intercontinental ballistic missiles or ICBMs that were capable of hitting the United States from the USSR, while the U.S. had many more such missiles including ones much closer to the Soviet Union in Italy and Turkey. To even the scales, Soviet Premier Khrushchev wanted to get some of their missiles closer to the U.S. Cuba is just 90 miles off the coast of Florida, and putting missiles there would, from a Soviet perspective, help address the strategic balance of power, as well as giving the U.S. reason not to invade Cuba, which the U.S. was quite likely to do at some point in the near future. And in fact, the U.S. had attempted to do so using proxy agents in 1961 during the Bay of Pigs disaster, which U.S. President John F. Kennedy had authorized, but he was only willing to go so far, and he didn't give the invasion the air support that was requested. After the Bay of Pigs, Cuban leader Fidel Castro was very concerned that the U.S. would launch another invasion of the island, and he was right to be concerned because that option was very much on the table. It's not clear what Castro initially thought of the plan of putting nukes in Cuba, but by May of 1962, he agreed, and work on the project began. The Soviets pulled out all the stops in trying to keep the project secret, including using maskerovka, a Russian term meaning masking, and it involved deliberate deception, including directly lying to the U.S. officials to keep the project a secret. Upon completion, the project would allow the Soviet missiles to strike almost anywhere in the 48 continental states. However, on October 14, 1962, photographs of the missile bases, which were under construction, were obtained by an American U-2 spy plane. This was reported to President Kennedy, and it touched off a 13-day crisis, which began on Tuesday, October 16th, and ran to Sunday, October 28th. The worst day of the crisis was Saturday, October 27th. 
It was later named Black Saturday because we almost went to nuclear war three times on that day. At the last minute, President Kennedy and Premier Khrushchev struck a deal, part of which was public and part of which was secret. In the urgent, hurried negotiations, Premier Khrushchev made a radio broadcast that contained the following offer. I therefore make this proposal. We are willing to remove from Cuba the means which you regard as offensive. We are willing to carry this out and to make this pledge in the United Nations. Your representatives will make a declaration to the effect that the United States, for its part, considering the uneasiness and anxiety of the Soviet state, will remove its analogous means from Turkey. So the Soviets would remove from Cuba the means which you regard as offensive, a phrase that will become important later. And they do that if we removed our missiles from Turkey. The problem was that just the day before, Premier Khrushchev had sent President Kennedy a message in which he was open to removing the missiles from Cuba, and he didn't mention anything about our removing missiles from Turkey. Now, during the crisis, the U.S. had imposed a naval blockade on Cuba to keep any more offensive weapon systems from going there. Uh, since a blockade is an act of war, they called it a quarantine to try to keep war from starting. And President Kennedy agreed to call off the blockade if the Soviets removed the offensive weapons from Cuba and if this was verified by appropriate inspections. At 9 a.m. Eastern Time on Sunday, October 28th, President Kennedy issued a statement in which he said, I welcome Chairman Khrushchev's statesmanlike decision to stop building bases in Cuba, dismantling offensive weapons, and returning them to the Soviet Union under United Nations verification. This is an important and constructive contribution to peace. We shall be in touch with the Secretary General of the United Nations with respect to reciprocal measures to assure peace in the Caribbean area. It is my earnest hope that the governments of the world can, with a solution of the Cuban crisis, turn their urgent attention to the compelling necessity for ending the arms race and reducing world tensions. He also agreed that the U.S. would not invade Cuba, and he secretly agreed to pull our missiles out of Turkey and Italy. But this part had to be kept secret, and they told Khrushchev that if he spilled the beans about that part of the deal in public, then the deal would be off. Khrushchev agreed, and the crisis was diffused. And then, the Kennedy administration officials being politicians, everybody lied about it afterwards to make themselves look good, as we talked about in episode 214. So, now that the crisis was over, I imagine there were prayers of Thanksgiving being offered up all over the world. No doubt, but it wasn't to everyone's relief. According to a timeline of the crisis on the National Security Archive, Although there is a sense of relief and exultation among most of the executive committee members, after word of Khrushchev's decision is received, several members of the military joint chiefs of staff are less enthusiastic. Admiral George Anderson reportedly complains, We've been had, while Air Force General Curtis LeMay suggests that the United States go in and make a strike on Monday anyway. In the afternoon, the Joint Chiefs instruct military commanders not to relax their alert procedures, warning that the Soviet Union's offer to dismantle the missile sites could be an insincere proposal meant to gain time. So we weren't yet sure if the offer was real or if it was a delaying tactic. And decades later, LeMay reflected on this as a missed opportunity and said, 
we could have gotten not only the missiles out of Cuba, we could have gotten the communists out of Cuba at that time. Members of the Joint Chiefs weren't the only people who were extremely unhappy. In Havana, Fidel Castro, who was not consulted or informed of the decision beforehand, reportedly goes into a rage upon hearing of the Soviet move, cursing Khrushchev. We won't use the actual cuss words that Fidel used, but suffice it to say that he said Premier Khrushchev was the son of a female dog, the son of parents who were not married to each other, and a particular body part that's located at the bottom of the digestive tract. Also, a few days later, Castro will publicly state in a speech at the University of Havana that Khrushchev lacked cojones. After meeting with high military leaders during the morning, Castro apparently goes to San Antonio Air Force Base himself in order to shoot down a U.S. low-altitude aircraft. However, U.S. planes do not pass over the base. So Castro's spontaneous airplane hunting trip did not bear fruit. But suffice it to say, he was really, really mad. Also, around noon... Fidel Castro declares that the U.S. assurance of non-aggression against Cuba is unsatisfactory unless it includes additional measures. He outlines several specific demands, later to be known as his Five Points. They include an end to the economic sanctions against Cuba, an end to all subversive activities carried out from the United States against Cuba, a halt to all attacks on Cuba carried out from the U.S. military bases on the island of Puerto Rico, the cessation of aerial and naval reconnaissance flights in Cuban airspace and waters, and the return of Guantanamo Naval Base to Cuba. But Castro really didn't get his way on all that stuff. We continued to have economic sanctions against Cuba. We continued to conduct subversive activities. We continued to do aerial reconnaissance of the island. And we didn't give back Guantanamo Bay Naval Base. So what happened in the days that followed the Cuban Missile Crisis? There was a gradual winding down, which took about a month. Wikipedia summarizes what was publicly known at the time. The U.S. continued the blockade. In the following days, aerial reconnaissance proved that the Soviets were making progress in removing the missile systems. The 42 missiles and their support equipment were loaded onto eight Soviet ships. On November 2, 1962, Kennedy addressed the U.S. via radio and television broadcasts regarding the dismantlement process of the Soviet R-12 missile bases located in the Caribbean region. The ships left Cuba on November 5th to 9th. The U.S. made a final visual check as each of the ships passed the blockade line. Further diplomatic efforts were required to remove the Soviet IL-28 bombers, and they were loaded on three Soviet ships on December 5th and 6th. Concurrent with the Soviet commitment on the IL-28s, the U.S. government announced the end of the blockade from 6.45 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on November 20th, 1962. So that's the history of the first Cuban Missile Crisis, which was the public one that the world knew about. But now it's time to tell the story of the second secret Cuban Missile Crisis that we didn't know anything about. So and before we get to that, I want to take a moment to thank our patrons who made this show possible, including Joey C., Scott E., Anthony M., David G., and Rick A. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. And you can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is also brought to you by Fairvento Law PLLC, now assisting clients with expungements and set-asides 
of Michigan Convictions. To learn more, call 231-202-3321 or go to fearventolaw.com, F-I-O-R-V-E-N-T-O law.com. And by Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is also brought to you by Deliver Contacts, offering honest pricing and reliable service for all your contact lens needs. See the difference at delivercontacts.com. So Jimmy, tell us about the second secret Cuban Missile Crisis. What happened during it? At this point, a new figure enters our story, and his name is Anastas Mikoyan. Uh, Mikoyan was born in 1895, and he died in 1978 at the age of 82. He had an interesting life, and we won't be able to go into it all here, but we'll have a link so that you can read about him. Mikoyan was born in Sanahin, Armenia, and so he was an Armenian, and Armenia was part of the Russian Empire at the time. In 1915, at the age of 20, he joined the Bolshevik Party, and he participated in the 1917 Russian revolutions. Afterwards, he rose to a high position of power in the Communist Party, and he remained at the top throughout the reigns of Lenin, Stalin, Khrushchev, and Brezhnev, which is quite a record given all the purges and violence that occurred during that time. Mikoyan was described by a Soviet official who said, the rascal was able to walk through Red Square on a rainy day without an umbrella and without getting wet. He could dodge the raindrops. He also had a famous brother, Artem Mikoyan, and in 1939, Artem and a man named Mikhail uh, Gurevich founded the Russian Aircraft Corporation. It's commonly known as MIG, with the MI coming from Artem Mikoyan and the G coming from Mikhail Gurevich. Uh, the company also is just called Mikoyan sometimes. So all of those MiG fighters that caused problems for America during the Cold War were produced by the company that Anastas Mikoyan's brother founded. After the Russian revolutions of 1917, Anastas himself helped to found a commune in Baku, Azerbaijan. But Baku fell after a battle in World War I, and the 26 commissars or commune leaders were all arrested, except for Mikoyan who led a commando group and broke them out of prison. They fled, but they were recaptured and executed, except once again for Mikoyan. He survived. His name was apparently left off a list of the 26 commissars, and he wasn't killed. And in 1920, Mikoyan married a woman named Ashken Tumanyan. How many children did they have? Together they had five sons. They also adopted two other sons, and... In the poor Soviet economy, with seven boys in the house, they had financial difficulties. To help make up the difference, uh, Mikoyan's wife would borrow money from high-ranking Soviet women who had fewer children. But she kept this secret from her husband, and the sons later said that if their father had known, he would have been furious. And what was happening with Mikoyan's political career? In 1924, after Lenin's death, Mikoyan supported Stalin in the resulting power struggle, and Stalin came out on top. And in 1926, uh, Mikoyan was appointed People's Commissar of External and Internal Trade. In this capacity, he started importing ideas from the West, like convenient canned food. Woohoo! Go canned food! In 1935, he spent three months in America on a goodwill trip, studying how Americans did things. He met with industrialist Henry Ford of the Ford Motor Company. He inspected Macy's department store in New York City. 
And after he came back, he introduced many American foods to the Soviet Union, including hamburgers, ice cream, cornflakes, corn on the cob, grapefruit, popcorn, and tomato juice. While he was at Macy's, Mikoyan was particularly impressed by the hamburger patty machines he saw that would take, you know, ground beef and make hamburger patties out of them. And he ordered 22 of these machines to take back to the Soviet Union, which is how the hamburger got introduced there. However, there were problems producing hamburgers during World War II, and so they came up with a substitute ground meat cutlet, usually made from pork or beef, and used those instead. These became known as Mikoyan cutlets, and Mikoyan cutlets became an extremely popular and inexpensive food. Mikoyan also popularized ice cream, and for a long time he kept control of ice cream production in the USSR. Stalin joked about this by saying, You, Anastas, care more about ice cream than about communism. And who doesn't? I mean, I certainly care more about ice cream than communism. Uh, Mikoyan also oversaw the production of a new cookbook, which came out in 1939. It sold millions of copies and became a staple of Soviet cookery, and it was known as the Book of Tasty and Healthy Food. So shortly after this, World War II broke out, and Hitler attacked the Soviet Union in June of 1941 during Operation Barbarossa. What happened with Mukiyan as a result? He was placed in charge of transporting food and supplies in the Soviet Union, which was an extremely important job as Mikoyan was keeping the Red Army's anti-Nazi warfighting efforts stocked and supplied. He also helped move Russian industry to cities farther east so the Nazis couldn't get their industrial production centers. But after the war, Stalin's attitude towards Mikoyan soured. Uh, this may have been in part because Mikoyan was not afraid to speak his mind, and he often argued with Stalin. Mikoyan was accused of plotting against the leader, and Stalin planned a purge against him. But Stalin died in 1953 before he could carry out his plan, so Mikoyan survived once again. What happened with Mikoyan after the death of Stalin? In the power struggle that followed, Mikoyan supported new premier Nikita Khrushchev, who came out on top. In 1956, Khrushchev and Mikoyan began the process of de-Stalinization, and Mikoyan helped Khrushchev prepare what's known as his secret speech to the 20th Party Congress, in which Khrushchev denounced Stalin's cult of personality. In 1957, an attempt was made to remove Khrushchev from power, but Mikoyan refused to back it, which helped cement his position as one of Khrushchev's most reliable allies. In response, Khrushchev appointed Mikoyan first deputy premier, which made him the number two man in the Soviet Union, though Mikoyan continued to speak his mind and would tell Khrushchev when he disagreed. Even after Khrushchev's own less threatening cult of personality began to silence everybody else in the Soviet hierarchy, Mikoyan would still speak up. For example, after the Berlin crisis of 1958 and 59, Khrushchev wanted Mikoyan to go on a goodwill trip to the United States to ease tensions. However, Mikoyan had not approved of Khrushchev's actions regarding Berlin, so he told him, you started it, you go. In the end, Mikoyan did make the trip, and he took a really interesting approach. Wikipedia summarizes, 
Mikoyan approached the mission with unprecedented informality, beginning with phrasing his visa request to the U.S. Embassy as a fortnight's holiday to visit his friend, Mikhail Menshikov, the then Soviet ambassador to the United States. While the White House was taken off guard by this seemingly impromptu diplomatic mission, Mikoyan was invited to speak to numerous elite American organizations, such as the Council on Foreign Relations and the Detroit Club in which he professed his hopes for the USSR to have a more peaceful relationship with the U.S. In addition to such well-received engagements, Mikoyan indulged in more informal opportunities to meet the public, such as having breakfast at a Howard Johnson's restaurant on the New Jersey Turnpike, visiting Macy's department store in New York City, and meeting celebrities in Hollywood like Jerry Lewis and Sophia Loren, before having an audience with President Dwight Eisenhower and Secretary of State John Foster Dulles. Although Mikoyan failed to alter the U.S.'s Berlin policy, he was hailed in the U.S. for easing international tensions with an innovative emphasis on soft diplomacy that largely went over well with the American public. In this same time period, Fidel Castro and his revolutionaries were trying to oust Cuban military dictator Fulgencio Batista, which they did on December 31st, 1958. So in 1959, Khrushchev sent Mikoyan to Cuba to establish relations with the new socialist state. Mikoyan was the first Soviet official, uh, government official, to visit Cuba, and he established very warm relations with the Cubans. In 1962, Khrushchev proposed sending Soviet nuclear missiles to Cuba, and Mikoyan opposed that. He especially opposed giving the Cubans control over the nuclear missiles, but he didn't get his way. And that brings us up to the Cuban Missile Crisis, the publicly known one that occurred in October of 1962. So what happened after President Kennedy and Premier Khrushchev worked out a solution? The problem was that Kennedy and Khrushchev worked out the deal themselves without consulting Fidel Castro. And so now the Cubans had to be convinced to follow through with the plan. This would not be an easy task. Uh, we already heard about how violently Castro reacted when he learned about the plan by listening to American radio. I mean, they hadn't even sent him a diplomatic cable to notify him. He actually learned about the deal by listening to the radio broadcasts of the American imperialists. So since Mikoyan had previous positive dealings with the Cuban leadership, Khrushchev dispatched Mikoyan to smooth things over and convince Castro to comply. Mikoyan took one of his sons, Sergo, with him on this trip, and in 2012, Sergo published an extensively documented book about the second Cuban Missile Crisis and his father's role in it. The book is called The Soviet Cuban Missile Crisis, Castro, Mikoyan, Kennedy, Khrushchev, and the Missiles of November. And this book will be our principal source of information today. In episodes 213 and 214, you pointed out that Robert Kennedy's book about the crisis, 13 Days, was written in a self-serving way that didn't tell the whole story and that misrepresented Bobby Kennedy's actions to make himself look good. So how much potential is there for that in this book? Well, I can't rule out that there's some distortion in the book. That's almost inevitable in historical accounts. However, the book is extensively documented. In fact, it contains 300 pages of primary source documents like telegrams and memoranda that were composed at the time. 
Also, Sergo isn't uncritical of his father. He's not portraying him as if he's always right. Sergo will periodically point out that his father was incorrect in assessments he made, whereas someone else had a more accurate view, at least on certain points. Between the 300 pages of primary source documentation and Sergo's willingness to say when his father was wrong, it seems to me that the book should be at least largely reliable. Then let's talk about Mikoyan's trip to Cuba. What was he trying to achieve? He had a number of key goals, and these included the following seven points. One, he had to convince the Soviets that their safety was assured and that there wasn't going to be an invasion, even though the missiles were to be removed. Two, he had to convince them that the U.S. promise not to invade would be kept in the future. Three, he had to explain why Khrushchev didn't consult them before making and announcing the decision. Four, he had to get them to agree to on-site inspections to prove that the missiles were no longer there so the Americans would drop the blockade or quarantine. Five, he needed to convince them not to fire on U.S. overflights of the island. Six, he had to get them to agree to the withdrawal of the missiles the Americans had discovered, as well as other things that Khrushchev had offered Kennedy. Seven, he needed to try to get Soviet-Cuban relations back on the same warm footing that they had been on before the missile crisis began. So he had quite a job ahead of him. When and how did Mikoyan get to Cuba? Immediately after the Kennedy-Khrushchev deal was struck, it was determined that Mikoyan would go to Cuba. Um, and this was a bad time for him because his wife, Ashen, was seriously ill. She had suffered a heart attack, and now she was bedridden and suffering from heart failure. But this was the time that history called. Anastas decided to take his youngest son, Sergo, with him on the trip. Sergo was an adult, and he had previously gone with his father in the capacity of a private secretary during the 1959 trip to America. And Ashen, Mrs. Mikoyan, supported the move of sending him to Cuba, telling her son, you will bring your father luck. Thanks to you, there was no tragedy that time you flew from America. I don't worry as much when you're with him. Consequently, shortly after the Kennedy-Hushchev deal was struck on Sunday, October 28th, Anastas and Sergo Mikoyan left the Soviet Union. They departed on Wednesday, October 31st, and they didn't go straight to Cuba. Instead, they stopped in New York in the United States so that Mikoyan could meet with two of his American associates, Adlai Stevenson, who was the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, and John McCloy, who was the chairman of the U.S. Council on Foreign Relations and who President Kennedy had tasked with crisis management. It was thought that meeting with these two men would give Mikoyan a better sense of what diplomatic solutions the Americans were willing to accept and thus help him prepare for his negotiations with Fidel Castro. So how did his discussions in New York with Stevenson and McCloy go? By and large, they went very well. Uh, Mikoyan was on friendly terms with both of them, and he recognized that as agents of the U.S. administration, they had to take the positions that their superiors required them to. This led to a problem because the Kennedy administration required them to push for more concessions than the Soviets had initially agreed to. So wait a minute. Kennedy and Khrushchev had already agreed to a deal. So why would the U.S. press for more concessions and risk upsetting it? 
the problem was that Kennedy and Khrushchev had agreed to the framework for a deal, but it was struck so rapidly that not all the details had been worked out. And this was partly Khrushchev's fault, which Mikoyan's son, Sergo, is very frank about in his book. Except for Mikoyan himself, Khrushchev had everybody at the Kremlin cowed into silence. They wouldn't contradict or correct him. That's one of the reasons why his communications with President Kennedy were transmitted without editing, something that we discussed in our original episodes. Khrushchev was dictating his responses on the fly, and they weren't being run through diplomats to point out potential problems so that they could be avoided. One of the problems was that Khrushchev used really vague language in describing what he would be willing to remove from Cuba. He didn't say, we will remove the following specific models of weapons and then list them. Instead, he said, I therefore make this proposal. We are willing to remove from Cuba the means which you regard as offensive. The means which you regard as offensive. That was an ambiguous, open-ended expression. And it was an open door for the Americans to ask the Soviets to remove anything they wanted. The Kennedy administration could name anything as an offensive system, and the Soviets would either have to pull it out or be accused of going back on the deal. Because the initial offer was entirely unspecific about what would be removed, Hawks in the administration pushed Kennedy to name as many systems as possible to get them all pulled. In particular, they demanded that in addition to the nukes and the missiles we knew about, that the Soviets also remove a bunch of IL-28 airplanes, which could have been used to carry nukes, and a bunch of Mosquito-class motorboats that the Soviets had provided the Cubans. So these new demands were a problem for Mikoyan. On the other hand, the discussions in America did make his job easier in another respect. Both sides knew verifying that all of the Soviet hardware had been removed would require inspections of some sort, and the Cubans were very unlikely to agree to having people from the U.S. come into their sovereign territory to do inspections without some kind of quid pro quo. So there were various alternatives being discussed. For example, maybe the inspections could be mutual and the Cubans could come onto U.S. soil to verify that we had torn down training camps for anti-Castro-Cuban insurgents. Or maybe the United Nations could conduct the inspections in Cuba. Or maybe we could just inspect the ships as they were sitting in Cuban harbors. During the course of the New York meetings, John McCloy suggested that if worst came to worse, and the Cubans wouldn't allow inspectors onto their island or into their territorial waters, that the weapons could simply be put on Soviet ships, that these ships could be taken out into international waters, and that they could be inspected there. So that was a hopeful idea. Did Mikoyan do anything else before he flew to Cuba for meetings with Castro? Yes, you'll recall that just after the public end of the crisis, Fidel Castro was extremely upset, and one of the things that he did was issue his set of five demands, known as his five points, like ending economic sanctions against Cuba, ending all subversive activities against Cuba, returning Guantanamo Naval Base, and so forth. Well, at the airport, just before leaving for Cuba, Mikoyan publicly endorsed Castro's five points. 
He did this as a gesture of goodwill towards Castro and to signal the Americans that they needed to be willing to negotiate. And even though the five points were never really acted upon, Mikoyan believed that this public endorsement of them helped warm up Castro and get him a much better reception when he got to Havana. When Mikoyan did get to Cuba, he received some very disturbing news. What was that? His wife, Ashken, had died from heart failure, so he had a big decision to make. He could have gone home to the Soviet Union to attend her funeral and grieve. That would mean delaying the urgent negotiations with Cuba, and it would mean bringing in another Russian negotiator, someone who didn't have the good personal experience that Mikoyan had with Castro, and probably someone who wasn't as good a negotiator as Mikoyan, because he was considered the best. So despite his personal anguish, Mikoyan decided to remain in Cuba, to suppress his grief and go on with the negotiations, no matter what he was feeling inside. Then let's talk about how the negotiations themselves went. Mikoyan had seven basic goals he was hoping to achieve, and the first of them was convincing the Cubans that their safety was assured and that there wasn't going to be a near-term invasion, even though the missiles were to be removed. So how did he do with that goal? This was a really hard sell. Uh, The U.S. had already supported an invasion of Cuba in 1961, the Bay of Pigs incident. Castro was convinced in 1962 that America was planning a new invasion as a way of removing the shame of having failed at the Bay of Pigs. And the Kennedy administration was planning an invasion of Cuba, as we discussed in our first episode on the Cuban Missile Crisis. It had even been planned at one point for October 1962, but we got the crisis instead. And on October 17th, the second of the 13 days, the U.S. started military exercises on one of the Puerto Rican islands, the purpose of which was an exercise to train for the Cuban invasion. And it was called Operation Ortsak. Ortsak is Castro, spelled backwards. So they weren't even trying to pretend that the operation was about anything other than knocking over Castro. Castro knew about Operation Ortsak, and even after the missile crisis had publicly ended, he wasn't at all convinced that Kennedy wouldn't invade. In his book, Sergo Mikoyan writes, The fact of the matter was that the clouds over Cuba had not cleared. In November, particularly on November 8th, U.S. armed forces had moved up to Florida's south shores an expectation of a command to storm Cuba. Even the number of American casualties had been calculated, down to one person as only the Americans can calculate, a total of 18,484 people, and of that number, 4,462 on the first day. R. Gotthoff said in 1992 that the buildup at that time included one Marine and five U.S. Army divisions, of which two were airborne. It included a paratroop force larger than the one that had landed in Normandy. The force totaled 100,000 Army and 40,000 Marine combat troops. The Navy had 183 ships, including eight aircraft carriers, on station. The airstrike plan called for 1,190 strike sorties on the first day, and potential casualties were estimated at 18,500 in 10 days of combat. At a conference in Havana in 1992, Soviet General Gribkov reported that our intelligence was informing us that an air attack and an invasion of Cuba were being prepared. 
Together with the Cuban military, we developed the defensive strategy. We considered the possibility that, as a result of the fighting, Cuba could be separated into several parts. Accordingly, we planned for our units to control those regions. The morale of our and Cuban armed forces was very high. Everybody was prepared to fight to the end. And though we won't spoil the surprise just yet, the American casualty estimates of just 18 or 19,000 troops being killed were way too low. They would have been much, much worse than that because there was something about the situation in Cuba that the American military planners didn't know. So there's a twist coming. In any event, Mikoyan really had his work cut out for him trying to convince Castro that Kennedy would keep his word and not invade with all that was going on. However, he could say, I mean, look, they've got all this military buildup happening in case the agreement doesn't hold, so your best chance of avoiding an invasion is to go ahead and comply. Otherwise, they will invade. And in the end, he got Castro's cooperation though Castro never really trusted the Americans to keep their word. What about after the current crisis? Was Mikoyan able to convince Castro that the U.S. would keep its promise not to invade in the long term? There were hopes of getting the U.S. to put that promise in writing in the form of a document with the United Nations, but that didn't end up happening. However, Mikoyan argued that there was still good reason to trust the U.S. going forward. Kennedy had made the promise not to invade publicly, and so it would look really bad on the world stage if he did invade. Unless the Cubans did something to provoke an invasion, it would look like a really big dominant country picking on a little underdeveloped one. Among other things, it would alienate members of the NATO alliance that the United States was trying to hold together. And so, as long as the Cubans sat tight and honored the deal, Kennedy wouldn't invade. Also, everybody, uh, including the Cubans and the Soviets, expected Kennedy to win re-election in 1964, and that would mean that Cuba would be safe until at least 1969. Probably it would be safer for longer than that, because when an American president publicly commits to a course of action with regard to a country, it sets a precedent that influences his successors, or at least it did back in 1962 before American politics became as hyperpartisan as it is now. So whoever Kennedy's successor was would likely honor the promise not to invade also as long as Cuba didn't do anything to provoke the U.S., which would protect them into the 1970s if Kennedy won re-election. And in fact, we never did invade, so Mikoyan was right about that, though Castro still didn't trust the Americans. What about Mikoyan's goal of explaining why Khrushchev didn't consult Cuba before making and announcing the decision? Was he able to explain that to Castro's satisfaction? No, uh, though Mikoyan did the best he could here. He tried to say, look, this all happened really fast. They were going to invade you within a day or so, as you yourself expected. So Premier Khrushchev needed to act super fast, and that's why you weren't consulted. Castro did not buy that for a moment. Even if Khrushchev needed to publicly announce a deal of some kind to stop the invasion, he didn't need to cut Cuba completely out of the picture. He could have said, Mr. President, on the part of the Soviet Union, we have no objection to pulling the missiles and doing this or that. 
but we can't do so unilaterally. We need to make sure our Cuban allies consent. So now let us pause so we can consult them. That would have been an eminently reasonable thing to do, and it would have gotten the peace deal on the table, stalled the invasion plan, and given time for proper consultation with Cuba. Instead, Khrushchev just assumed Cuba would comply with whatever he decided. He ignored Castro's interests, and Castro knew it. In his book, Sergo Mikoyan is pretty harsh on Khrushchev about this, noting that people in the Kremlin habitually deferred to him and suggesting that Khrushchev had a kind of superpower syndrome, where the head of a world superpower just assumes that smaller countries will go along with what it wants without really thinking about it from their perspective, something that American leaders during the Cold War tended to assume too. So Castro was never satisfied with the explanations of why Khrushchev didn't consult him. Castro really liked Mikoyan and said very warm things about him, but he personally resented and distrusted Khrushchev after this. What about Mikoyan's goal of getting the Cubans to agree to on-site inspections to prove that the missiles were no longer there so the Americans would drop the blockade or quarantine? This led to some internal fireworks during the negotiations. You'll recall that one of the proposals was for mutual inspections to make sure both that the U.S. was honoring its side of the deal, like getting rid of training camps for anti-Castro insurgents, and making sure that Cuba was getting rid of the missiles. Mikoyan knew that the U.S. would never agree to on-site inspections in the U.S., and they would be useless anyway because the United States is enormous and we could easily set up training camps somewhere else. So, Sergo explains, Because Mikoyan knew that there would be no reciprocal inspections with the United States, he understood that Castro would flatly reject the possibility of ground inspections on Cuba's territory. So he suggested a compromise to accept United Nations Secretary General Utant's proposal to have his representatives approach Soviet ships in Cuban ports and, without even stepping on the ships, to document the presence of missiles on board. The Americans would be told that the inspection took place in Cuba. With a little stretch, Khrushchev's promise could be considered to be officially fulfilled. Mikoyan thought that this compromise would be well-received by Castro. In fact, he'd been assured by the Soviet ambassador to Cuba, who had apparently spoken with someone in Cuban leadership, that Fidel would agree. But he didn't. And instead, he made a very dramatic announcement. Fidel rejected this proposal right away. All his emotions were heated, and they stirred up the recent injuries. As a result, he made a statement that sounded virtually like a proposition to end all the military ties between the USSR and Cuba. Here is how Mikoyan described what happened in his telegram to Moscow. Then, speaking in an outwardly calm tone, Fidel suddenly made the following unexpected statement. I would like to say, Comrade Mikoyan, and I speak for the entire Cuban people, that we will not agree to a unilateral inspection. We do not want to compromise the Soviet troops and endanger world peace. If our position puts world peace in jeopardy, we would think it would be more appropriate to consider the Soviet side free of their obligations. We would put up our own resistance come what may. We have the right to defend our dignity. Mikoyan continued, 
I was not surprised by his refusal to allow inspections in the ports. Rather, I was shaken by the concluding part of his speech. For several minutes, we were silent. I thought about where to lead this matter. I decided not to mention this shocking statement. I said that I did not understand the reason for such a sharp reaction to my proposal. So in this exchange, Castro essentially proposed ending the military alliance between the Soviet Union and Cuba. He said that he wouldn't accept one-sided inspections in Cuba, even by the United Nations, and even in Cuban ports, so not on their soil and not in their territorial waters. And if that endangered world peace, then the Soviet Union should consider itself free from their obligations, meaning you're no longer responsible for our security. Get out. We will put up our own resistance. You're done with this situation. How did Castro's advisors react to this shocking situation? They tried to walk it back. In the aftermath of it, several Cuban officials spoke to Mikoyan and told him to ignore Castro's outburst and pretend it never happened. And Mikoyan had to scramble to find a way out of the situation because he knew he had to inform his Soviet superiors of what Castro had said. When he got a telegram back from Khrushchev, it didn't really disagree with Castro, but it was written in a superpower way that sounded threatening and offensive to Cuban sensibilities. So Mikoyan lied about what Khrushchev had said. Sergo explains, Transcripts of the talks show that Mikoyan did not convey anything from that part of the letter to the Cubans. His entire mission would have come to nothing if he had told the Cuban side the contents of the letter. So he did something totally different. He even improvised part of the letter, reading what Khrushchev had never written, saying, I noted that Comrade Khrushchev emphasizes the fact that the ground inspections in Cuba are out of the question because they are unacceptable to the Cuban government. This made a big impression on them. In the end, the issue of inspections was resolved by going with the fallback plan proposed by the American Council of Foreign Relations head, John McCloy, to take the offensive weapons and put them on Russian ships, get them out into international waters where Cuba couldn't object, and give them a cursory inspection there. Castro really let his temper show in this incident. Ending the military alliance between the Soviet Union and Cuba would be a huge step for the island nation. Did Castro cause similar problems on other occasions? Absolutely. Uh, Castro was regularly a problem for Mikoyan. Even before Mikoyan arrived in Havana, Castro's famously hot temper had shown itself. As we said, Castro not only cursed Khrushchev out when he heard about the deal, he also went out to San Antonio, Cuba to shoot at low-flying American airplanes, even though they didn't fly over it. And the Soviet ambassador telegrammed Moscow, telling them how angry Castro was and saying, In my three years of close contact with Fidel Castro, I have never seen him so distraught and irate. During the negotiations, Mikoyan regularly found Castro difficult to negotiate with. He often thought that he had come to an agreement with Castro, only to find Castro later going back on the question, at which point he would have to reconvince Castro of what the two had earlier agreed upon, so that they were constantly having to go back and forth and cover points that the two had already agreed to, because Castro kept agreeing to things and then later rejecting them, making Mikoyan's process very frustrating. 
At one point in the negotiations, despite the high regard that Castro held Mikoyan in, he simply left and he stayed away for two days. Mikoyan didn't know what had happened. They'd just had a difficult conversation in which Mikoyan had to inform Castro that the Soviets had agreed to remove their IL-28 airplanes from Cuba. And the next day, Castro wasn't anywhere to be found. As we'll hear, Mikoyan got the negotiations back on track using a little ruse, but it illustrates the kinds of things that he had to go through in dealing with Fidel. One of Mikoyan's goals was to convince Castro not to fire on U.S. overflights of the island. How well did the negotiations on that point go? This one is quite interesting. For some time, the U.S. had been conducting overflights of Cuba using U-2 spy planes to monitor what was happening in the country. And that's how we discovered the missiles in the first place, after all. And U-2s are designed to fly at very high altitudes, well above the range of the anti-aircraft weapons that the Cubans had. So there really wasn't anything you could do about the U-2 overflights. And as part of the wind-down from the public crisis, the Cubans had agreed not to shoot at U.S. planes temporarily, but the U.S. had also begun to use low-flying aircraft to do reconnaissance on Cuba, and this was viewed as a deliberate provocation. Sergo Mikoyan writes, Castro knew very well that the United States did not need the low-altitude flights for their control. U-2 planes were flying regularly in conducting aerial photography, but these planes were virtually invisible and inaudible from the ground, so let them fly at that altitude. The low-level flights were used to humiliate the Cuban army and the population to demonstrate their impotence. In fact, Fidel told Mikoyan that he visited air defense squadrons of the Cuban army and saw the fighters simply weeping with helplessness as they told him how the American pilots make hedge-hopping flights, and make fun of them, knowing that they are not allowed to fire. Castro didn't have the weapons needed to do anything about the U-2s, but he really wanted the humiliation of the low-level flights to stop. He also really did not want the Russian IL-28 airplanes to be removed from Cuba, as the Americans were demanding. So he decided to do something without telling the Soviets. He told Mikoyan... We should not tie the issue of American flights over Cuba to the removal of the IL-28 bombers, since we already agreed that Cuba will send a statement to UN Secretary General Utant regarding the flights. Then he said that several hours ago, he sent such a statement to Utant. This was a shock to Mikoyan to learn that the Cubans had already undertaken this decision and communicated it to the United Nations without informing him. And... That was a bit of payback on Castro's part for the Soviets not consulting him when they made their deal with President Kennedy. And Fidel threw the same excuse back at the Soviets that they had tried to use on him for why they didn't consult him. Namely, he couldn't wait and needed to act urgently. Fidel Castro made the following reply. I could wait no longer, and while visiting the anti-aircraft gunners today, I told them that starting on Sunday, or maybe Saturday, we will open fire on all American airplanes flying over our aerodromes, ports, and military bases. Of course, we will only fire within the range of our anti-aircraft artillery. And this was a pretty skillful move on Fidel's part. I mean, he had no ability to stop the U-2 overflights, but he could and would end the humiliating and unnecessary low-level flights. 
He announced the decisions publicly in a letter to the United Nations several days in advance of his order going into effect so that the U.S. would have several days of warning to stop the low-level flights and not endanger their pilots. And he did all this without consulting the Soviets, sending them the message, I'm not your lapdog, how do you like it when you're not consulted? One of the key goals for Mikoyan was to get the Cubans to agree to the withdrawal of the missiles the Americans had discovered, as well as other things Khrushchev had offered Kennedy. So what happened here? It varied depending on the situation we're talking about. Uh, one of the late demands, which the Americans made only after the public crisis was over, was for the removal of Mosquito-class motorboats. But these weren't really an offensive system. They were essentially defensive. And so the Americans backed down on that demand and the Mosquito motorboats stayed in Cuba. When it came to the IL-28 bombers, there was a difference of opinion. While you could load nukes onto these bombers, they were essentially airplanes and not really offensive systems in and of themselves. Privately, Kennedy had indicated that he really didn't care about the IL-28s and that he'd be okay with them staying in Cuba. But his advisors pointed out that he had mentioned them in his televised speech to the U.S. public when describing offensive systems the Russians were putting into Cuba, and so Kennedy agreed to go along and make this demand. Mikoyan was of the opinion that the plane should not be removed, and Castro agreed he wanted them to stay. But Premier Khrushchev wanted to do everything possible to end the crisis and not give the Americans any pretext for saying that they were going back on their word. So Khrushchev insisted that the planes be removed. Mikoyan communicated this to Castro, and it was at this point that Castro vanished for two days. At first, Mikoyan thought Castro was taking a day to cool down and consider what he might do, but then Castro didn't show up the next day either. In Mikoyan's own words, The next day, he just took off for some distant province without excusing himself with something like, I'm leaving, please do such and such activity, go and visit such and such a place. He could have said, I have some business to take care of, please take some time and visit any place you would like. But he did not say a word. I am waiting for him to schedule a time for a meeting. Then I find out that he went to a province and did not leave any instructions. I'm waiting there like a fool. He could have told me to use the time to rest or something of the sort. He had such a violent temper. It's true that we had disagreements. But he has an anarchistic type of personality. But overall, I usually succeeded in convincing him. Sometimes the process would begin all over again. We would come to an agreement on everything, and the next day he would begin defending his old position. For five days in a row, I could defend some issue and bring it to a close every day, and we would reach an agreement just to have him begin it all over again in a few hours. He is an interesting person. I respect him. As a person, he is honest and good. I cannot say a bad word about him. But sometimes his behavior was just impossible. So Mikoyan was just cooling his heels, waiting for another meeting to be scheduled with Castro, but nobody told him anything for two days. So he decided two can play at this game. If Castro is going to go off without telling me, I can go off without telling him. Even though Mikoyan had no plans on leaving Cuba at this stage, he got together with two men, both of whom were close to Castro. One was a scientist he knew named Jimenez, and the other was uh, Fidel's brother, Raul. And he said to each of them, 
you know, I think I'm going to be going back to the Soviet Union in a couple of days. And they said, wait, what? What do you mean? And he replied, well, there, there aren't any meetings going on here. And I've got a lot of work to do back at home in Russia. So I should get back to all that if we're not going to meet. And later they can send someone else to conclude the negotiations or just abandon the negotiations altogether if we're not going to be able to come to an agreement. Both Jimenez and Raul immediately started trying to convince him to stay. And Raul started making excuses for Fidel, saying that his absence was caused by urgent business. And then, in Mikoyan's words, The next day, Fidel suddenly showed up at lunch at our embassy. He spoke some good words about his respect for me, about the fact that we've been friends for a long time, and that there is no one better to conclude the negotiations. So Castro got the message, and the negotiations were back on track. But in this case also, Castro took the initiative in making the removal of the airplanes public. Sergo Mikoyan writes, A day before the agreement about the removal of the IL-28s was made public, Utah received a letter from Castro. The letter had already been published in Granma, in Cuba, and the information went overseas. In the letter, Castro stated that the airplanes were the property of the Soviet Union, which was the case, and that a joint decision with Cuba had been made to remove them. Carlos Rafael Rodriguez explained to Mikoyan that the purpose of this statement was to avoid, this time, the shock that the Cuban people felt after the announcement about the removal of the missiles. So by Castro taking the initiative in making the decision public, it would avoid the shock that his own people had when they previously weren't consulted. What about the offensive missiles themselves? Did he put up a fight on having those taken out? Not the ones that the Americans had found out about with the U-2 flights. Uh, Khrushchev had agreed to pull those, and Castro also agreed. He didn't want any unilateral inspections on Cuban soil or in Cuban territorial waters or in ports. Nevertheless, those missiles were promptly packed up and removed. But there was something that the Soviets and the Cubans knew about that we didn't. So here comes this episode's twist. The nukes that we'd learned about with the U-2 overflights weren't the only ones in Cuba. In addition to those, the Soviets had shipped a class of nuclear weapons and missile delivery systems to Cuba that we didn't know anything about. There were 100 nuclear bombs that had been sent to Cuba that had escaped American detection. These were small-sized bombs, but together they represented the explosive force of 100 bombs the size of the one that we dropped on Hiroshima, Japan. The missiles that went with them were known as Luna missiles, and they were considered a tactical rather than strategic system. This meant that they had a short range of about 40 miles, so they couldn't simply be used to strike the United States from Cuba, but they could be used to strike a U.S. invasion force heading to Cuba, which is why the military estimates of U.S. casualties that we mentioned earlier were way too low. If a U.S. invasion fleet was heading towards Cuba, the Luna missiles could have simply been used to drop tactical nuclear weapons on the ships, killing everyone on board and decimating the fleet. And in wartime, 
they could have put the Luna missiles on ships, gotten the ships close to the U.S., and nuked targets on the mainland, though that wasn't their purpose. Some in the Soviet Union wanted to leave the undetected Luna missiles and nukes in Cuba, along with Soviet military officials to control and operate them. According to British journalist Joe Matthews, that even included Premier Khrushchev. In an article for the BBC, he writes, The secret missile crisis came about through an unnerving mix of Soviet duplicity, American intelligence failures, and the mercurial temperament of Fidel Castro. The Cuban leader, cut out of the main negotiations between the superpowers over the fate of the long-range Soviet missiles stationed in Cuba, began to seize cooperation with Moscow. Fearing that Castro's hurt pride and widespread Cuban indignation over the concessions Khrushchev had made to Kennedy might lead to a breakdown of the agreement between the superpowers, the Soviet leader concocted a plan to give Castro a consolation prize. The prize was an offer to give Cuba more than 100 tactical nuclear weapons that had been shipped to Cuba along with the long-range missiles, but which, crucially, had passed completely under the radar of U.S. intelligence. Khrushchev concluded that because the Americans hadn't listed the missiles on their list of demands, the Soviet Union's interests would be well served by keeping them in Cuba. Matthews then turns to Mikoyan's visit to Cuba, writing, Kremlin No. 2, Anastas Mikoyan, was charged with making the trip to Havana, principally to calm Castro down and make him what seemed like an offer he couldn't refuse. Mikoyan, whose wife was seriously ill, took the assignment knowing that the future of relations between Cuba and the Soviet Union were on the line. Shortly after arriving in Cuba, Mikoyan received word that his wife had died, but despite this, he pledged to stay in Cuba and complete negotiations with Castro. In the weeks that followed, Mikoyan kept the detail of the missile transfer to himself while he witnessed the mood swings and paranoia of the Cuban leader convinced that Moscow had sold Cuba's defense down the river. Castro particularly objected to the constant flights over Cuba by American surveillance aircraft and, as Mikoyan learned to his horror, ordered Cuban anti-aircraft gunners to fire on them. Knowing how delicate the state of relations was between the U.S. and Russia after the worst crisis since World War II, U.S. forces around the world remained on DEFCON 2, one short of global nuclear war, until 20 November. Mikoyan came to a personal decision that under no circumstances should Castro and his military be given control of weapons with an explosive force equal to 100 Hiroshima-sized bombs. And late in his trip, Mikoyan learned something alarming. The Cuban Ministry of Foreign Affairs, or MFA, was planning to send a message to its UN representative that mentioned these nukes. He thus sent an urgent telegram to Moscow. Special Telegram Number 1892 To the Central Committee of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union I do not consider it a coincidence that Cuba's Ministry of Foreign Affairs gave our ambassador, Comrade Alexeyev, a copy of its instructions to the UN representative which contains a reference saying that we have tactical atomic weapons which should be kept. Tomorrow, on November 22nd, the conversation that will start at 22 o'clock, or 10 p.m., Moscow time, 
could, among other things, touch upon the fate of the new military agreement. In connection with this, the present question could arise, which I will have to answer. Following this telegram, Moscow took action. Sergo Mikoyan writes, Moscow asked the Cuban MFA to take measures to remove the phrase about tactical atomic weapons from the directive for the UN representative in order to prevent an information leak. After all, the United States still did not know about the presence of the Luna missiles with nuclear warheads on the island. The meeting that Mikoyan referred to began at 10 p.m. Moscow time, which was 2 p.m. in Cuba. It went on for four hours, which is a really long meeting, and it did not begin well. Castro was in a bad mood, and the meeting was tense. The reason Castro was in a bad mood was that President Kennedy had made a speech earlier in the day. In this speech, he referred to, among other things, all nuclear missiles being removed from Cuba and all Soviet troops being removed from Cuba. Mikoyan tried to reassure Castro, but then this exchange occurred. Castro said, I am still in a bad mood because some points are still unclear to me. I am concerned, first of all, by Kennedy's statement that all nuclear weapons were removed from Cuba. Has the Soviet Union ever given such a promise? Is it true that all the tactical nuclear weapons are already removed? Mikoyan said, The Soviet government has not given any promises regarding the removal of the tactical nuclear weapons. The Americans do not even have any information that they are in Cuba. So then the tactical nuclear weapons are here? And no assurances were given regarding their withdrawal? Not about the tactical nuclear weapons. Therefore, then, the weapons are here? Yes, they're here. They are in Comrade Pavlov's hands. Castro then brought up the fact that Kennedy indicated that all Soviet troops would be removed from Cuba. This is something Castro did not want, but Premier Khrushchev had volunteered to do this in his anxiety to end the public crisis. So Castro resigned himself to their being removed, but he asked that the Soviets not hurry in pulling them out and also having them train Cuban forces in how to use the non-nuclear weapons that they were leaving behind. Castro also made pointed remarks, saying that he would not have agreed to the Soviet missiles if Cuba had known that they were just going to be pulled out. Uh, that he really didn't want them in the first place, and that he only accepted them out of a sense of duty to the socialist camp. But now he saw that the Soviets didn't feel the same sense of duty towards Cuba. Castro said, It all began with the Soviet Marshal of the Rocket Forces, Sergei Beryuzov, promising us the missiles. We believed that the missiles were delivered to Cuba, not in the interests of Cuba, because we did not need them. Then I gave my consent, thinking that we were fulfilling our duty to the socialist camp. We took the risk, believing that the socialist camp would also take the risk for us. We were even prepared for a nuclear war in the event if the Soviet Union was attacked. Now I can see that the Soviet government was not prepared to do the same for us. Mikoyan, anxious to reassure Castro, then said, We were also prepared to make sacrifices for Cuba. The Americans were not as much afraid because we deployed our missiles in Cuba as they were afraid that they would transfer them to you. Castro said, Doesn't the Soviet Union transfer nuclear weapons to other countries? 
If Mikoyan answered yes to that question, then the next question Castro might ask would be whether they'd be willing to transfer the 100 tactical nukes and Luna missiles to Cuba. After all, the Americans didn't know about them, and they were not part of the agreement that Kennedy and Khrushchev had struck. But Mikoyan was determined not to let Castro have the tactical nukes. As Joe Matthews summarizes, On 22 November 1962, during a tense four-hour meeting, Mikoyan was forced to use the dark arts of diplomacy to convince Castro that despite Moscow's best intentions, it would be in breach of an unpublished Soviet law, which didn't actually exist, to transfer the missiles permanently into Cuban hands and provide them with an independent nuclear deterrent. In other words, Mikoyan decided to lie to Castro. Here's what he said when Castro asked if the Soviet Union transfers nuclear weapons to other countries. We have a law prohibiting the transfer of any nuclear weapons, including the tactical ones, to anybody. We never transferred it to anyone, and we did not intend to transfer it. The nuclear weapons remaining in our hands would be used in the event of a war to defend the entire socialist camp. Would it be possible to leave the tactical nuclear weapons in Cuba in Soviet hands without transferring them to the Cubans? No, Comrade Fidel, it would not be possible, because if there is no Soviet base in Cuba, then the Soviet officers will be acting only as advisors to the Cuban army. The Americans are not aware that the tactical nuclear weapons are here, and we are taking it out not because of the American demands, as you would think, but of our own will. I understand you, Comrade Mikoyan. However, we thought that the jointly developed strategy is a factor in strengthening the ties between the countries of the socialist camp, both in the political and psychological sense. We are not afraid of responsibility. We understood the Soviet statements in their direct sense, not in a figurative sense. We did not think that you would choose the less dangerous option. If we had known about it, we would not have agreed to the deployment of the Soviet missiles in Cuba. So Castro was continuing to find fault with the Soviet Union and continuing to play the blame game. There was a possibility that this already tense meeting would go sideways. Mikoyan wanted to remind him of the progress that had been made, and so he said, Are we returning to the first day, Comrade Fidel? Maybe we have never left it. Have you not learned anything? We realize that you made a great deal of effort, Comrade Mikoyan, and we thank you for that. Let's not talk about it. Good, but still, if one sums everything up, we still have not achieved the acceptance of the five points— we made concessions. It did not give us anything other than the lifting of the blockade. And what concessions have you made? What do you think we are? A zero on the left? A dirty rag? We tried to help the Soviet Union get out of a difficult situation. So Castro was clearly angry, and Mikoyan did his best to calm him down. As the four-hour meeting went on, there was an incident in which, in quick succession, the exhausted translator made a couple of mistakes, causing Castro and Mikoyan to misunderstand each other. Sergo Mikoyan explains, At this point, Ernesto, Che Guevara, who had a quick sense of humor, took his gun out of his, its holster, moved it along the large table toward the translator and said, 
It seems to me that there's just no other option for you. Everybody had a good laugh. And, yeah, that's good. While that broke the tension for the moment, Castro returned to the subject of the imaginary Soviet law that Mikoyan had lied about. Still seeking a way to get control of the tactical nukes, Castro said, So, you have a law that prohibits the transfer of tactical nuclear weapons to other countries. It is a pity. And when are you going to repeal that law? Mikoyan did a typical diplomatic thing at this point and said, We will see. It is our right to do so. Basically, that's a non-committal response that was designed to pacify Castro without giving him a direct no. And eventually they wrapped up the meeting. As Joe Matthews summarizes, Mikoyan extricated Moscow from a seemingly intractable situation which risked blowing the entire crisis back up in the faces of Kennedy and Khrushchev. Finally, after Mikoyan's trump card, Castro was forced to give way, and, much to the relief of Khrushchev and the whole Soviet government, the tactical nuclear weapons were finally created and returned by sea back to the Soviet Union during December 1962. And so, the second secret Cuban Missile Crisis came to an end. Mikoyan had one last goal he was trying to achieve in the negotiations. He wanted to get Soviet-Cuban relations back on the same warm footing they had before the missile crisis began. So how well did he succeed in this? It was a partial victory. Uh, now that they didn't have nukes anymore as a deterrent to keep the U.S. from invading Cuba, Castro very much wanted to negotiate a military pact with the Soviet Union, and so he was willing to keep talking even after Mikoyan flew back to Moscow. He also personally really liked Mikoyan, and in later years, he said very warm, complimentary things about him. But he never trusted Nikita Khrushchev again. And so that remained a black spot on Soviet-Cuban relations, though he kept it largely out of the public eye until after Khrushchev's fall from power in 1964. Uh, Khrushchev's fall being something that will come up in future episodes. Okay, now what can we say about the second secret Cuban Missile Crisis from the faith perspective? God saved us this time, too. Uh, former German Chancellor Otto von Bismarck had a famous saying. God has a special providence for fools, drunkards, and the United States of America. And God provided for us and the whole world, in this case, by not letting the second crisis spiral out of control or lead to nuclear war. Let's pray that he continues to do so. Jimmy, what's your bottom line on the second secret Cuban Missile Crisis? The second Cuban Missile Crisis is a fascinating and little-known part of Cold War history. It only came to public attention decades after the first crisis was over, and we can thank Anastas Mikoyan for navigating it to a successful conclusion. Despite the loss of his wife at the beginning of the negotiations, he suppressed his personal grief and remained on the job. Although he was a communist, he was much more flexible than others. As we heard in his biographical segment today, he was impressed by how things were done in the United States, and he introduced many techniques and American foods into Soviet society, like hamburgers and ice cream. He was able to be friends with Americans, like Adlai Stevenson and John McCloy, and with Cubans, like Fidel and Raul Castro and Che Guevara. Unlike most in the Soviet Union at the time, he was willing to tell Khrushchev when he disagreed with him, 
and he was recognized by all as the best Soviet diplomat, which allowed him to find a way to get the final 100 tactical nukes safely back to the Soviet Union. Jimmy, what further resources can we offer to the listeners? We'll have a link to Sergo Mikoyan's book, The Soviet Cuban Missile Crisis, also a link to Joe Matthews's article, The Cuban Missile Crisis, The Other Secret One. Also, information about the Cuban Missile Crisis, Anastas Mikoyan, Sergo Mikoyan, the National Security Archive timeline of the first crisis that we quoted from, also photos from Operation Ortsak, information on the Luna missiles, and the National Security Archives page on the second crisis. Excellent. So that does it from us this time. We'd love to hear your theories about the secret Cuban Missile Crisis that the world never knew about. You can let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page, sending an email to mysterious at sqpn.com, sending a tweet to at mys underscore world in the StarQuest Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord, or calling our mysterious feedback line at 619-738-4515. That's 619-738-4515. And I want to say a special word of thanks to Oasis Studio 7 that does the video and animation work on this episode and on all of the Mysterious World episodes. Uh, You can find out more about them if you have video and animation needs by checking out the work that they do on my YouTube channel. Just go to youtube.com slash Jimmy Aiken. And while you're there, I I am trying to grow my channel. We just passed 30,000 subscribers. And so Help us get to 50,000. While you're there, please uh, like, comment, and subscribe, and also hit the bell notification so that YouTube will actually tell you when we have a new episode of Mysterious World or any of the other videos I do. So, Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? Next week, we're going to begin a two-part look at Ellen Gould White, the founding prophetess of Seventh-day Adventism. Next week, we'll be looking at her life, and the week after that, we'll go into analysis mode and ask, was she a real prophet? Excellent. Folks, be sure to follow Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, in your favorite podcast app, or like Jimmy just said, at youtube.com slash Jimmy Aiken. And again, hit that bell to get notifications. You can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion on our show notes at mysterious.fm slash 228. And remember, to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation at aaronv.com, A-A-R-O-N-V.com, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida. And by Catechism Class, a dynamic weekly podcast journey through the Catechism of the Catholic Church by Greg and Jennifer Willits. It's the best book club, coffee talk, and faith study group all rolled into one. Find it in any podcast directory. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest. If you've enjoyed Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World, you'll also enjoy another StarQuest Network show, The Secrets of Technology. Find it wherever you can find podcasts or at sqpn.com technology.